Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 26 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to read from verses uh, 36 to 46. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. You follow along in your copy of the Scriptures, or you can find one in the pew ahead of you. And um, I'll read from my uh, New International Translation that I have in front of me. Matthew chapter 26. Verse 36, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Then he came back. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were so heavy. So he left them and went away one more time and prayed once more and prayed the third time saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said, are you still sleeping and resting? Your translation might be different. The wording is in the original is very hard to figure out. Look, the hour has come and the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is a passage of scripture that pulls us in a couple of different directions. On the one hand, we take this passage up with a sense of holy reverence. We're listening to the God-man as he wrestles with what's going to happen to him in the next 24 hours. What's he going to do as he contemplates drinking this very bitter cup? On the other hand, though, this is one of the most helpful passages in all of the New Testament when it comes to to us, instructing us, helping us follow Jesus faithfully, especially when he leads down dark, agonizing paths that we would never choose for ourselves. If we only think about the lessons that are here for us, we risk trampling over what the book of Exodus might call holy ground. We dare not treat Gethsemane like a crime scene that we're to pull apart to find clues. On the other hand, though, if we only think about uh, our reverence for Christ as he goes through this, we risk leaving fruit uh, that is there for us to eat and, and, and benefit from, leaving it there to rot on the vine. Really, we need both. We need both. We need to grow in our reverence for the Lord Jesus and tremble before him as he trembles before uh, his own death. And uh, we need help. We need help in following him faithfully in our own suffering. 
In some ways, I feel like when we come to this passage, like a park ranger standing with you on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and, and my job is here to tell you about some of the things you're looking at so that your awe, you will be in greater wonder. You'll, you'll, knowing more things, you'll say, wow, this, this is astounding. And yet at the same time, I'm supposed to lead you over to the shed where the pack mules are and help you find one that you're going to ride with me down into the canyon so that you know how to navigate safely steep cliffs and high rock walls. Both of those things I, I, I feel uh, compelled as, as we come to this passage. I think as we walk through it, it's best to order uh, our, our way through with headings that focus on, the, on, on Christ himself, on, on who he is and what he experienced here. We're going to focus on him, but also think about us as we move through this passage. Now, let's begin. Three headings to think about this passage. First of all, contemplate with me, Jesus is alone. Jesus is alone. This is a theme throughout all of these chapters in the Gospels as we, as we see uh, uh, Jesus interact with his disciples here at the end. Do you remember what Peter said with him? Uh, Peter said, when Jesus said to him, all of you are going to fall away on, on, on account of me. And, and Peter said, no, no, no. I will, even if I have to die, I will die with you. Emphasis, with you. You won't be alone. I won't abandon you. Everybody else will abandon me abandon you, but you, you won't be alone because of me. Well, we know what happened to Peter. Verse 36 says that Jesus took his disciples with him to a place called Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane is not a, a fancy word in any particular way. It just refers to a place where olives were processed, a, an olive press. They're on the Mount of Olives. You would harvest the olives and then take them to Gethsemane where they would be processed, and you get the oil out of those olives. It probably was, we're not sure about this, but probably a, an enclosed area and inside maybe a low wall would be all the equipment that you would need to press the olives. Why did Jesus bring his disciples with him this night? Why didn't he send them home after they ate their Passover meal? The boys, you, you go home, I'm going to go pray. Why did he bring them with him? I, it's, it's interesting, verse 38, he says, Keep watch with me. I think it's because at this moment in time, Jesus wants company. He leaves eight, eight of them he leaves, and then he takes three of them, maybe the three of them, the four of them, go inside the enclosure, Peter, James, and John, and he says, stay here and keep watch. I'm, my soul's overwhelmed with sorrow. Stay here and keep watch with me. He doesn't want to be alone. But what happens? They, they fall asleep. He's alone. We just sang it a minute ago. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Jesus is alone. There's no one, there's no one who's going to accompany him to his trial. There's no one who's going to stand up in his defense while the, the, the chief priests and the, they're lying about him and making up stories. There's nobody who's going to stand up and say, that's not true. There's nobody who's going to be with him in the courtyard as that whip whistles through the air and slams against his back. There's going to be no one there to wipe the blood out of his eyes. There's going to be no one to, to say to him, keep going, 
You can do it. No one who's going to say to him, remember the joy that's set before you. No one who's going to say, remember your father's not a, will, will not abandon you to the grave. Remember, keep going. Now it's true. You might want to ask me about the weeping women who are along the way. That is true. Those faithful weeping women in the gospels. He must have brought some comfort to him. But, but they saw what he was doing as defeat, terrible defeat, nothing wonderful, nothing glorious, just pity. Uh, has, have you ever hired a, 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 a physical trainer or a strength coach, someone to help you get into shape? You show up at the gym and there they are, they've got a plan, a program for you to follow, and, and um, they're there to encourage you when you're on your last rep of your last set of your bench press and you're really struggling to put those 400 pounds up over yourself, right? Your strength coach is there to say, what's he there for? Or she there for? Keep going, keep going, push, push, push. You can do it, you can do it, you can do it, right? That's their job. The comparison is inadequate. There's no one like that for Jesus at this point in time. No one encouraging him. Again, I know the Gospel of Luke tells us that angels came at this point in time. Matthew doesn't record this. Luke does. Angels came and ministered to Jesus at this point in time, but none of his friends. He's alone. He, he carries the cross to Calvary, and he can't do it, falls, and who, who do they get to carry the cross for him? A stranger from the crowd, someone they grab. It's not Peter that's there to help him, not James, not John, none of his brothers. Jesus is alone. And on the cross, he hangs there, and he's surrounded by whom? The soldiers that nailed him there, and the chief priests that conspired to get him there, who call out their mockery of him. There's no one there to say, not much longer now, not much longer now. You can do it. Keep going. Keep going. He's alone. There's only one human being who had any sort of idea of the wonder and the glory of what was happening, and it was the thief who was next to him, and his understanding is pretty dim. Just that one, one kind voice. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that if I had been there, I would have done better. That's not what I'm saying at all. Jesus is alone. I think then... We, we add to that the cry that he issues on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the one that he has called right here in this passage, my father has now forsaken him. There's no one, no one to watch and pray with Jesus. He's alone. Listen, Brothers and sisters, dear friends, Jesus suffered and died alone so that you would never have to suffer and die alone. So that you can say with David in Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. 
Or like David says in Psalm 27:10, though my father and mother forsake me, though the people who should care for me in this world before everybody else, they should be first in line. If they forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Do you remember Jesus' last promise at the end of the Gospel of Matthew? What did he say to his disciples? He said in Matthew 28, 20, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And in Matthew 18, when he's giving instructions to the disciples as they think about the church that is to come, and and they're thinking about the difficult task of church membership, when a congregation would be most apt to self-doubt and question, are we really doing the right thing? Are we doing the right thing? There is this assurance from Jesus in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. I will be with you. Jesus suffered and died alone so that you would never, you would never have to suffer and die alone. Remember where this loneliness, this aloneness comes from. Sin separates. Our rebellion against God, our sin separates us. It separates us from God. God is holy. We are not. And his holiness is consuming holiness. Unholy people cannot survive in the holy God's presence lest they be consumed. It's like getting too close to the sun that it will consume you. So sin, we can't be in God's presence and survive. Sin separates us from one another. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? What did they do when they first disobeyed God? They, they covered themselves because they were ashamed. Sin separates. And then when God walked in the garden, they hid. And Jesus is the one who must come to rescue us. Jesus is alone so that you would not be. Alistair Roberts suggests, <coughs> suggests that we compare Jesus' prayer here in Luke uh, in Matthew chapter 26 with Paul's prayer in 2 Corinthians 12. Remember, Paul had some issue. We don't know what it was. He called it a thorn in the flesh, maybe some physical malady. And he prayed three times, just like Jesus prays here, three times he prayed that God would remove it, and God didn't remove the thorn in the flesh. God didn't heal him like he asked, but instead he said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you. I'll be with you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Rather than answering Paul's prayer, God promised his presence to do in Paul's life and through Paul's life what he never could have imagined if he was whole like he wanted to be. I remind you of this. Jesus suffered and died alone so that you would not suffer and die alone because there will be times in your life when you will feel very much alone. I used to, one of the things that I used to enjoy doing as a pastor is going to to the hospital early in the morning to pray with people before they had surgery. It's not really possible anymore. They change their policies and how they, the, how they do things. Uh, but I used to be able to go back into the uh, pre-op area where they were getting people ready for surgery, not into the operating room itself, but into the area where you would check in. And, and I, uh, while the nurses were maybe starting IVs and helping you fill out forms, I would sit and I could visit and, and pray, read some scripture and pray with um, uh, people. It's a great privilege. I can't do that anymore. I haven't been to the hospital for two years because of COVID, and it's, it's all, they change your policies, so when you have your hip replaced, I'll call you. That's what I'll have to do. But uh, uh, 
you're in there, you're there in the pre-op room, and, and uh, at one, some point in time, I leave, and then the person who brought you leaves, your husband, your wife, well, one of your children leaves, and there you are on that very uh, hard gurney and um, uh, just, just vulnerable state, and they roll you down the hall to the operating room, and you feel very much alone. Are you alone? Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of your operation. (laughs) There are people around you, dear friends, who feel this morning very alone. And one of the ways that God reminds us of his presence is by surrounding us with other followers of Jesus. When you sit with a weeping follower of Jesus, you are there to remind them that God is with them too. Jesus is alone so that you would not have to be. Now let's move on and we see what else do we discover about Jesus here in this passage or what does this remind us of? Number two, Jesus is in anguish. The second heading, Jesus is in anguish. Verse 37 says, um, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Those are deep, rich, thick words. You could translate them in a number of ways. Some of you might prefer. Um, uh, He began to be anguished and distressed. That's accurate. Grieved. He began to experience terrible distress and misery. Some people have translated, he was crushed with anguish. Or he began to be depressed and confused. He says, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And I think you're supposed to think of Psalm 42, 5 and 6, where the psalmist said, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? My soul is downcast within me. Now, you know that there are some scholars of the New Testament, uh, skeptical scholars, who um, part of their, their job, uh, their academic career, is to take the Gospels and try to figure out what they think actually happened and separate it from what the the early church made up later in creating the myth of Christianity. There are people who, New Testament scholars, that that's what they devote themselves to. You You might be surprised to understand that skeptical scholars think that this is an absolutely accurate recording in the Gospel of Matthew. They have no doubt about this passage in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, we who are faithful followers of Jesus, we believe this was written by an eyewitness to these accounts, and uh, he recorded them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So uh, we certainly affirm the accuracy of what's written, but uh, uh, those skeptical scholars join us in affirming. um, Why do they think it's accurate? They think it's accurate because What we have in this scene is the hero of the Gospel of Matthew is crumbling, and if you want to advocate for following this hero, why would you show him falling apart like this? Who would make this up? Can you imagine the comic book and how it would be if you see Superman standing in the streets of Metropolis and the citizens are behind him and ahead of him is his great nemesis, Darkseid, the villain, and there he's coming to threaten all of them? And what would it be like if Superman were to turn to the crowds and with tears in his eyes and say, oh, if there's some way I could rescue you besides going to fight him, I don't want to do that at all. What kind of hero is that? 
My children and, and I used to, when we would drive around town, listen to audio recordings of some of the novels of Clive Cussler. If you've ever read a Clive Cussler book, they're sometimes laughably ridiculous. They're, they're uh, uh, um, action stories, and um, it's not literary fiction, all right? Um, but, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Clive Cussler has a character that we used to, our favorite uh, Clive Kessler character was a man by the name of Juan Cabrillo, and Juan Cabrillo could do anything. My children used to call him Juan Burrito, but Juan Cabrillo could do anything. And there's a, there was a point in the novel, two or three times in almost every novel, where Juan Cabrillo recognizes some danger, and he's going to run to the danger to take care of the problem. And the, the, the narrator, he was a little hammy too, he would always, he would, he would say things, he'd read the book, this is in the text, he set his jaw, and with a steely look in his eyes, he turned to the danger and ran toward it. Where's, where's Jesus' set jaw in this passage? Where's his steely gaze? This isn't how martyrs die. This is not how Socrates took the hemlock that killed him. This is not how early Christians uh, went to their death. Let me tell you a, a one account of a man by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp of Smyrna. He was the bishop of Smyrna. Here's a photograph of Polycarp. Polycarp died in AD 160. He was martyred in AD 160 at age 86. Polycarp is interesting as a bishop because he is believed to be the longest or the last living person who knew one of the apostles. He was discipled by the apostle John. Polycarp was arrested. The Roman council, uh, proconsul brought him uh, before him and, and said to Polycarp, you must renounce your faith, your, your belief in Jesus. And, and uh, he said, here's uh, a recording, a written recording of the eyewitness testimony. The proconsul said, I have wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. Uh, it is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. In other words, if they eat me, I'm going to heaven. Great. Um, then the Roman proconsul said, If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. And Polycarp said, You threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and is then extinguished. But you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And Polycarp said, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? May God give us more octogenarians like that, right? Feisty, faith-filled octogenarians. He's staring down the Roman proconsul who's going to sentence him to death. Why isn't Jesus staring anything down here in this passage? He, he prays for this escape. Let's see, verse 39. My father, if it's possible... Dale Bruner wonders if he knows whether there's any other possible way. Remember, Jesus had already said he didn't know when he would return, only the Father knows. And Bruner says, I wonder if, he's, if, if he doesn't know, this, in the mystery of the incarnation here, if he doesn't know. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, and as I will, but as you will. 
The word cup here, actually, in the passage is what helps us understand what Jesus is experiencing and what's going on here. The cup, the word cup explains his fear. Because in the Bible, the word cup refers to someone, when you use in context like this, it refers to consuming or being consumed by God's wrath. I could show you several passages in the Old Testament that use this image, but here's one of them. Jeremiah 25, 15. Look what it says. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Jeremiah. Take from my hand, God says, this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom he sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, its kings and officials, what did the cup do? It made them a ruin and an object of horror and scorn, a curse as they are today. Jesus looks forward to the cross and what's going to happen to him? He's going to be ruined. He's going to be made an object of horror and scorn, a curse. Jesus faces this death like this because his death is unlike any other death. There's a scene in um, uh, J.K. Rowling's novel, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. There's a scene where uh, Harry Potter and his mentor, Albus Dumbledore, are traveling around the world trying to find objects that the evil wizard Voldemort has hidden. And, and they go to a, um, one of them is hidden inside a cave. It's a cave with a, a, a sea and in, there's an island. And on the island is a basin and the object they're looking for is at the bottom of the basin. And the basin is filled with this liquid, this strange liquid. And they try to reach in and get this object. They, they need it to defeat Voldemort, and, but they can't get it. Uh, and, and Dumbledore realizes that in order to get that object, they're gonna have, uh, somebody's going to have to drink that vile liquid. Yeah, there's magic around it. And, 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 and if, when you drink it, it will fill you with terrible despair. Um, Dumbledore gives Harry Potter some instructions. He gives him a little scoop. And he says, you must make me drink this. You must make me drink this. No matter how much I beg you to stop, you have to drink. Keep bringing it to me and make me drink it. So the next scene, there it is. Harry Potter continues to scoop and, and put it in Dumbledore's mouth. And he begs and pleads and Harry keeps, keeps going. Hmm. Remember how I said Jesus is alone. Harry Potter encourages Dumbledore, you can do it, you can do it. Jesus is alone. There's no one, no one to help him consume this cup of his father's wrath. Jesus is going to become sin. He's going to become sin. He's avoided sin his whole life. He's avoided, he's fought against temptation and he is going to become sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Our sin credited to him and he will face God's wrath. It's, he's going to become an object of horror, of scorn. He's going to be ruined and he's in anguish. You live in this world. You who live in this world, you will face anguish, not anguish like this. Was there ever grief like this? We sang that a minute ago, that line. Grief, grief is that sort of emotion that, that looks not just in the present at what has been lost, but grief has a way of looking forward at what 
will be without that loss? What will my life look like now without my spouse? It's horrible. What's my future going to be like without my child? What's my future going to be like without my health? I thought I was a healthy person. I'm not a healthy person. What's my future going to look like? What, what is my future going to look like empty of the great dream that I have to have children? Grief. Anguish is part of life in this broken world. And Jesus says, if you follow him, you're going to have even more trouble. John 16, he said, in this world, you have trouble. You will have trouble. Um, but then he says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus explains in this passage why our anguish is so bad. He said, verse 41, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, you have noble aspirations, your spirit, you have noble aspirations, but the flesh is weak. That is, either you're, you're a human being and you have a human body and, and you're subject to weakness because you're human. There's that, that they fell asleep. Maybe that's what he's thinking about. Or maybe he's talking about the fact that we have within us this inner disposition to rebel against God and that just makes everything worse. You could think of Romans 7, 18 to 19 in that regard. Look what it says. Some of you read this in your Bible reading plan and you think this is my biography. I know that good itself does not dwell in me that is in my flesh, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What do we do? We live in this broken world. We have this inner brokenness in us. What do we do? Well, we move on here. Heading number three, Jesus is assured. Jesus is assured. Again, we have to contrast. We have to contrast Jesus and the disciples. Both of them are going to be tested. Jesus had told the disciples, you are going to be tested. You're all going to fall away from me. And Peter crowed about his loyalty. Use that word on purpose because, right, there's a rooster, a rooster that's going to be the signal of Peter's betrayal. And what do we think about roosters? They're very proud animals. They wake up the sun. They wake up everybody, right? They uh, lift their heads proud. Er, 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 they crow. And, and Jesus says, you're all going to fall away from me. And Peter says, not me. Right? He crows his great loyalty. The disciples aren't worried. They're not worried. Just take a nap. You're fine. I mean, Jesus said you'd fall away, but nah, we're okay. Jesus is tested and he falls on his face before God. He's too desperate to sleep. He says, keep watch. We read that. Keep watch with me. Now, on the one hand, when you first read it, you think, now, what is Jesus talking about? Is he is he, he knows the soldiers are coming. He knows he's going to be arrested. Does he want them to keep a lookout? You be the lookout. I'm going to pray. Is that what he's, is that what he's saying? N- no. Then, then what happens in verse 40, he says, watch and pray. Keep watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. It reminds us of what he told us, to, how he told the disciples to pray. How should we pray? Teach us. He said, pray this way. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. 
Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. In Matthew chapter 24, he spoke to them about the suffering that's going to come at the end of the age. It's going to be unexpected. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be terrible. What should they do? Watch, keep watch, keep watch. They don't need to keep watch. They're fine. Jesus is the one who prays. S.D. Gordon says this about Jesus and prayer. How much prayer meant to Jesus? It was not only his regular habit, but his resort in every emergency, however slight or serious. When perplexed, he prayed. When hard-pressed by work, he prayed. When hungry for fellowship, he found it in prayer. He chose his associates and received his messages upon his knees. If tempted, he prayed. If criticized, he prayed. If fatigued in body or wearied in spirit, he had recourse to his one unfailing habit of prayer. Prayer brought him unmeasured power at the beginning and kept the flow unbroken and undiminished. There was no emergency, no difficulty, no necessity, no temptation that would not yield to prayer. Think about the disciples and Jesus and the contrast between the two of them. Many scholars have seen in this an affirmation of the Lord's humanity. His, he is the God-man. He is truly God and truly human. Peter, James, and John had seen an, an unparalleled display up to this point in time of his deity on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now Peter, James, and John see this unparalleled manifestation of his full humanity, his true humanity, as he comes in prayer before God expressing his will and his submission to his Father's will. Craig Blomberg said of this, Here then appears the classic scriptural example of a prayer that God does not answer in the way desired by the one praying, yet without any fault in the person making the request. Here too is a key reminder for us, if Christ could plead as boldly as he did, we should feel free to also to unload all of our deepest desires before God. This is what Jesus wants, this cup to pass. But what he wants more, what he wants even more, is God's will. Your will be done. Do you see development between verses 39 and 42? Some people do. See if you think this is, sounds uh, different, these requests. Verse 39. My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I, I will but not as I will, but as you will. And then verse 42, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. You see development there? Your will, your will, in submission to your will, that's what I want more than anything. And now the issue is settled with this resolve. I'm here in submission to my father's will. Now, finally, we have the steely glaze steely gaze and the set jaw as he gets up to go to his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. And there's never anything like this again in the rest of the gospel of Matthew. The issue has been settled. Not my will, but your will be done. The disciples, they collapse. Jesus goes. I wonder how these words ring in your heart. Not your will, but not my will, but your will be done. How do they settle into your heart, into your prayer life? Do they have reigning influence in the way you think about what you really want? Henry Nouwen said this about this similar concept. 
I love Jesus, but want to hold on to my own friends even when they do not lead me closer to Jesus. I love Jesus, but want to hold on to my own independence even when it brings me no real freedom. I love Jesus, but do not want to lose the respect of my professional colleagues even though their respect does not make me grow spiritually. I love Jesus, but do not want to give up my writing, travel, and speaking plans even when they are more often to my glory than God's. I love Jesus, but... Your eternal destiny is tied to the fact that Jesus submitted to his Father's will. If he had not submitted to his Father's will, what? There's no cross, there's no burial, there's no resurrection, there's no ascension, there's no Lord reigning on high to whom we can turn for forgiveness by faith. Your eternal destiny is bound up in the fact that Jesus, when he prays, says, not my will, but yours be done. Can you see what God does in answer to that confession? French painter Auguste uh, Renoir, when he uh, got to the last decade of his life, he had terrible arthritis and was basically homebound. But he had a young friend, also a, a great artist, Henri, Henri Matisse, who was 28 years younger than Renoir, who had come to visit him. And Renoir had terrible arthritis, terrible arthritis in his hands, and he continued to paint, though, even the, the, the tremendous pain. He got to the point towards the end where he could only barely hold the paintbrush between his thumb and his index finger. And, and sometimes his students would hear him groan, kind of like moan because of the pain when he would try to move the brush across the canvas. And one day he was working on it. Matisse was there watching him, just torturous pain with every, every stroke. And, and Matisse said to him, Auguste. Why do you continue to paint when you're in such agony? And when Renoir said, the pain passes, but the beauty remains. There's a lot of pain in these chapters. A lot of pain. And we feel it keenly. But oh, there is such beauty to behold. Such beauty to behold that Jesus welcomes us into as his people. We follow in his steps. Not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for this passage. It reminds us of the wonder of the Lord Jesus that though he faced this terrible cup, drinking down the wrath of God on the cross, he did it in submission to you. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Lord, we are grateful to you for this reminder of the glory and the wonder of our Lord Jesus who sacrificed himself for us. Oh, Lord, help us to feel deeply the joy and the wonder, the beauty and the sorrow of this sacrifice. And yet, Lord, we hear it. We hear Jesus teaching us to pray, even in this passage, thy will be done. We hear that, and we ask you that you would enable us to walk through the anguish that you have ordained for us, to walk through it with this level of submission. Not my will, but yours be done. 
spread that through our minds and our hearts and in how we pray too. Help us, oh help us, Lord. We pray asking these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.